Welcome to the Intern Whisperer Live, the show all about the future of work. Brings a lot of energy, doesn't he? <laughs> it always makes me do a pause. So this week's Intern Whisperer Tip of the Week is just as a reminder to our listeners, you can hear any of our tips from previous episodes, but we are looking at the Department of Labor's seven criteria for unpaid internships. So the fifth criteria is it's straight from the tear-off sheet by the DOL, is the extent to which the internship's duration is limited to the period in which the internship provides the intern with beneficial learning. A lot of technical jargon there, but what that means is the length of the internship, it's limited to a semester, and it should benefit the intern. So it's not about us as the employers, it's about them. And we realize that some employers may not agree with that statement, and that's okay, but let's just take a moment to think about that. They are unpaid, they do need mentoring, and our platform is designed to help employers with these problems and give you as the employers the tools and training to be phenomenal mentors and also be employers for change. So I'm gonna welcome our guest. We're going straight into the show and it is Kyle Moran, CEO, and Robert Torres, who also goes by Bobby, a managing partner with 302. So welcome guys to the Interim Whisperer. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, super excited. Um, so our show is all about education, innovation, and the future of work. Uh, just go ahead and kick us off and let us know what is your educational background and what was your first job? You guys can pick and choose whatever order you want to go in. Yeah, um, I guess I'll start. I, my educational background, I went to the University of Central Florida, so I'm a knight over at UCF. Um, started off in engineering. And I think just through school and like a bit of work experience kind of evolved out of engineering, went towards game design eventually. Um, so I switched my major to game design and then ended up switching my major again to interdisciplinary studies actually, just to kind of give myself a breadth of social uh, sociology that I was really interested in. And then also game design and engineering. I just wanted to kind of explore as much as I could learn um, on that side and through UCF and some of the professors that I worked with, um, I actually got my first job, uh, my, I guess like my first work relevant job at a uh, simulation company called Kinetic, where I did a bunch of R&D projects for uh, the Navy. I think I've heard of them. They're Kinetic. local, right? Yeah, yeah they, they were local to a research park back in uh, behind UCF. Oh, nice, very nice. Okay, so how about you, Bobby? Yeah, my uh, education career doesn't align with anything I do. I think uh, where I'm at right now professionally is probably my second career, maybe third, if we're counting uh, me working in restaurants while I was in my uh, you know, senior year of high school and through college. Um, but yeah, I graduated from Florida International University in Miami um, and graduated with a degree in IT. Um, that's information technology with a focus on like network technologies. Um, did that for a few years, got into, um, you know, systems administration and, and back end, you know, server infrastructure. And then, you know, Kyle called me one day and said like, Hey, I want to make a video game. I said, I don't know anything about making video games, but I do know things about servers. And he says, okay, that sounds great. And then we didn't make that video game. So. So uh, then I started kind of my second career in, in, I guess, marketing. And now, you know, here I am. 
So how did you two meet? <laughs> you want to answer that, Bob? <laughs> um, yeah, so we moved in. My family moved from New Jersey um, in like 1998 or 1999. Kyle's family moved in about that same year, if not that summer. Um, and he moved in five doors away from me in 1999. And then we've been friends ever since. So over 20 years, huh? Yeah. Oh, wow. That is super cool. Since you were in that area, where where exactly in Orlando were you guys living? Was it close to UCF? Oh, we actually uh, grew up in West Fort Lauderdale, so down in okay. Broward County. Nowhere yeah. near here. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> no. Florida, Florida is big, and uh, we grew up in, in uh, I guess, South Florida. Huh. Interesting. What would that first game have been? If you were going to make that first game, since you guys right. didn't. Oh, yeah. the short version. <laughs> the short version uh, is a game called Penance. It was a, a story kind of exploring the balance between vice and virtue. Um, oh. It's supposed to be like an action platform or kind of exploring the decisions between vice and virtue and how you, um, how you personally evolve through that experience. I like that game. How come you didn't make that? That sounds like a great game. <laughs> Because we, we tried to make it before we knew how to make games. Um, <laughs> so it was a good learning experience, definitely. But we, it was definitely our, our first game that we tried to make, which uh, takes, a, takes a while to learn how to make games before you can, you can crack it. So so you think you're going to bring that idea back up on the table to make it? Sounds some... like it would be a really good game, morality. <laughs> um, Caesar, I'm hogging all the questions. I'm going to go ahead and let you have a turn here. You probably, you probably mentioned it. So why did you want to start a company in Orlando? I think the short answer to that is why not? Uh, when, when you think about starting a company or, or you know, taking that leap to, to uh, build up a side hustle or something like that, I think the best place to start is where you're at right now. Um, and at the time we were in Orlando, so that was uh, the best place for us. So. Um, we learned after the fact that Orlando just happened to be, you know, one of the uh, uh, best places for technology startups and especially in uh, um, virtual reality and, and basic simulation and training, uh, which we ended up you know, dabbling in and, and working with uh, simulation companies. So Kyle, you have experience working in that defense sector, but mm -hmm. Bobby, did you also get to play in it before you guys formed a company? Yeah, I had worked in um, in a private public partnership in, in the city of Miami, so I knew kind of the government world, but military milsim was not my background whatsoever. I didn't know how fast government worked, and um, you know we we got to experience some of that. That is very very true. So, what kind of services do you guys provide? Or maybe you might want to talk about the industries that you actually specialize in. You know, take your pick or both. Yeah, when it comes to talking about the industry and, and 302's place in it, we, you know, we're a development and design studio. Um, we really specialize in uh, immersive and, and uh, experiential uh, tech, you know, whether it's games, whether it's a simulation. But right now we're really focusing on human-centered design and really um, taking the concepts of game design on the principles of game design and applying that to uh, solutions across verticals from, you know, from healthcare to education, you know, we kind of call this uh, everyday play. Basically, we really strive to insert uh, play and make uh, play a, a, a norm 
of the projects that we work on. So Kyle, what, what does human-centered design mean for our listeners? They may not know. Yeah, human-centered design is a good question. It, it's, it sounds overly simplified, but it's taking the human into consideration at the center of the design. So rather than thinking about like, okay, here's the problem and here's what we're trying to convey in terms of like, let's say marketing or in terms of like trying to persuade something through your design, it's really considering what does the human need? Who is that human? What is your customer? What is What are they looking for? How, how do they act and respond? What is their normal flow? And then how can I design around that? Right. So if you're trying to design something for, let's say like a parent of two kids, you don't want to design something that is overly cumbersome and, and difficult for them to work with and, and distracts them from their kids. You want to consider their kids in mind. You want to consider their lifestyle in mind, really trying to design around how that human's life plays out. So I have a game idea here because we're talking about this and cool. you mentioned human centered design and it builds off of your, your um, penance idea. <laughs> so I'm thinking that there would be a game about texting and driving or just being on your phone and driving mm -hmm. and there's obviously right or wrong so i could see it in this human-centered design tell me if i'm interpreting this well or even close um there would be you know talking on the phone while driving that's you know some type of a distraction texting and driving reading a text and driving shooting a video while driving like i could <laughs> see it going through progressions of like how it could be really, really bad and what the consequences are. Would that be something that would work for this type of human-centered design concept? Absolutely. That, that's really like, like you said, taking the different aspects of like what humans do day to day and using that within your design process. So taking the understanding of how someone interacts like with their cell phone and their car and breaking down those elements. And then you're trying to then create an experience to simulate what that would look like and the the negatives of why you should not do that yeah and then we'll throw some babies in the car seat in the back or <laughs> a five-year-old with a phone and then they're hitting their baby the baby brother whatever just throw more variables in there and seeing like this is what could happen if you do not put the phone down like Absolutely. consequences bodies this is horrible bodies flying out of the car i worked for an attorney that did a products liability and it was with uh, auto manufacturing and that's really what you end up seeing in the courtroom. But it's stuff yeah. that people don't think about. What are the consequences of doing that, right? Well, and experiencing that, right? Like that's some of our technology, the benefit of doing things in virtual reality and augmented reality is it's more than just reading that in an article. And, you know, it's one thing to read about it or hear about it. It's another thing to sit in an experience and actually experience those things happening. Mm -hmm. um, so even though there's that like kind of shock value horror of like, oh God, like that's terrible for some situations that's that's real life that's what will happen and, and that's almost what you want to convey um and there's i think commercials and other things like that i, I think about like the dare program a lot of the dare program right. was about that shock and awe to, to really like wake you up and say hey like this is bad and you need to pay attention yeah um, drinking or driving right so right. yeah but I don't think they do anything that like that with texting. So we should uh, put together a proposal. I'm getting a lot of <laughs> brainstorming ideas here, guys. So we should put that together and see if we could sell like that, that over there. Yeah, because I was on a, <clears throat> a phone call every, this is Tuesday, every Tuesday. I don't know if you saw this come out from the UCF um, incubator program, but they had SBIR, STTR opportunities every Tuesday. It was like all day. 
So I was on that call while I was like listening. It was, I've been through that course before and you can mm -hmm. make a proposal. So I think we could throw a proposal out there and see if it would uh, potentially get picked up. Yeah, and, and Isabel, I think the, um, our main objective as a studio is really to kind of take that example that you uh, uh, came up with on the fly and say, yes, we, we can help you. Um, we're not just game designers. We're not just game developers. We we're educators. Think, yeah, yeah, we will help you think through these problems. Um, and just matter of fact, the virtual world just happens to be one of the best mediums to to handle some of these problems, right? Whether it's mm -hmm. you know simulating a car accident or creating some sort of stress simulator, um, where you have to get, manage all these problems. Where if you have to do that in the field, imagine trying to coordinate getting babies into a backseat and uh, texting and driving. I mean, all the legal loopholes that are here, the legal uh, uh, rings of fire that you'd have to jump through to do that would just be nuts, right? Um, yeah. So taking advantage of the virtual space um, and looking at the problems that we would venture to solve as humans um, and doing that. I think that that idea, I know we're staying here on this, this particular idea for a minute, but I think it's worthy because in virtual reality, there are, um, we can look like real humans, right? But they could also look like characters in a game, to some extent, avatars, if you will. Is that true? Am I yeah. interpreting that correctly Absolutely. also? So the more realistic it becomes to a person that's looking at that, um, I think that, you know, not avatars, it needs to be like real humans and it has to look like that. That is a, a powerful statement. I don't know if that would make a difference, but hopefully it would. Yeah. I have been guilty of driving and texting, so. If you want to invite us on for another podcast, we can go on and on about the uh, the potential for VR training and why it's possible and, and the, the future of education. Um, there, there's there's a lot to talk about there. Uh, consumer products and, um, you know, Apple glasses are just scratching the surface. Once those technologies come, come to the market, the world changes, not just because the products are so innovative, it's because the way that we interpret the world around us using this technology will change. Well, we actually are gonna do another show, but a separate one on simulation. I bet you guys could talk about that one too. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah, so we'll, we'll plan that one also. Okay, so that was good that you slid that one right in there. <laughs> okay, so Caesar, you can go ahead and do the next question. So how many types of virtual reality types of virtual reality are there? And explain what they are exactly. I would say in virtual reality, so more in the what we consider like XR, uh, is kind of like the broader umbrella term. Um, there's three categories in the spectrum. There's the virtual reality side, which is more you put on the headset, you're fully immersed into an experience. Uh, you can't see anything in the real world. Um, the other side of the spectrum, you have augmented reality which is more taking the real world and augmenting on top of it. So overlaying text or images or 3D models on top of the real world. But in that you're not necessarily interacting with the real world, it's more just overlaying on top of it. Um, and in the middle of those two experiences, you have what's considered mixed reality, which is taking digital content and then putting that into your reality in a way that it's interacting with the physical environment. Um, so that's kind of like the broad spectrum of it. And, all three of those categories, they provide different user experiences. Augmented reality is good for things like um, overlays and data information, things like maps and displaying new content. 
virtual reality is really going to fully immerse in you and into an experience. So say like you want to travel to a completely different location than where you're currently at, um, or if you want to go into a new world or a new game, then you can do that in virtual reality really well. And then on the mixed reality side, it's more about taking digital content and interacting with your current environment and putting things on the table and the chairs and the floor and the walls and having things move around and creating that more immersive experience with your physical environment that you're already in. So I'm going to throw us into ITSEC. You guys go to the uh, ITSEC conference. Yep. And so for our listening audience who may, who is not all local in Orlando, that is one of the biggest conferences in the country, United States, that you can go to in the training and simulation industry with some special partners like in healthcare and defense, all of the things that we were mentioning earlier, education, you know, enterprise size companies that can really, the military, not just defenses and maybe Martin Lockheed, you know, Lockheed Martin, but, you know, military also. One of the things that I like going uh, when I go there is that I can actually experience those things that you were just sharing with the audience. And I don't know if the average person can relate to that. So is there a movie or something that you can even reference for our listeners that could differentiate between mixed, augmented, and virtual reality? Because I usually go to, let's see, Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> because I think you can see yourself being beamed up and being moved to someplace else. And while it's not, it was on a movie set, but I think that demonstrates it to what the average person could relate to. I don't know. Can you guys give me any examples? I think the big one for virtual reality, uh, of course, is Ready Player One. Um, mm. The movie's pretty good. The book is way better. Uh, <laughs> I recommend the book. Yeah. Um, the movie is good as well. And that, that's a complete virtual reality experience. They put on a headset, they go to a completely different world. They're completely immersed in where they are. Um, Jumanji. Exactly. Yeah. Like that kind yeah. of experience, like taking you somewhere completely different. For augmented reality, I think more things like overlays. If you, I would say more in like the video game side of like, if you have like a HUD or a helmet that you wear and you can see more information, that's more that augmented reality side, which is a lot of like what Microsoft and the army are working towards is being able to create those user experience overlays to give more contextual information for a soldier. Mixed reality, I don't know of a good movie experience that shows mixed reality too well. It's a good, mm. That's a good thought. It's something to look into maybe. I have yeah. like YouTube videos that show it off, but in terms of like a movie that uses it, I don't know too many. Yeah, we'll see if we can find something and add that one to our conversation for next time, Absolutely. because I'm pretty sure we can we can find something that supports it. Yeah, All right. I think Blade Runner, Minority Report, Ready mm -hmm. Player One, uh, even uh, Pacific Rim, right? Where Pacific Rim, they kind of hop into these suits um, and they're controlling these big robots that we're not too far from being able to do things like that, right? Where you have this big heavy machinery that somebody in an office somewhere is controlling with a VR headset and you know some sort of haptic suit. Mm. You know what? I don't think I've seen any of those movies. So now I'm going to have to put them <laughs> on my list of things to watch, or at least one of them, Ready Player. I, I know I should see that one. The other yeah. ones, I may have to get that list from you guys tomorrow when I go down. Wednesdays and Thursdays are the days that I generally drop into OGS. So I will make sure I get that list. Perfect. All right. So back over here, how has the virtual reality, how has it changed in the past few decades? So given that you guys were, I don't know, five when you first met, so, you know, <laughs> you're somewhere around there is what I'm guessing, you know, how have you seen it change? Because you, I'm going to guess you probably grew up with some of this technology when you were in maybe teens, so you're not yeah. that old. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't get to get my hands on a Virtual Boy, which is like Nintendo's uh, first attempt at VR, until um, way later in my life. But um, VR headsets, as soon as uh, the Google Cardboard came out, I mean, I had a bunch of them. I had my family using them. The first thing I did was update my phone so I could um, kind of do VR and my little cardboard headset. Um, but we're, we're a long time, you know, since that's happened, there's been so many changes in, in uh, you know, computing power and accessibility. You know, that was like one step into the consumer market. And to be quite honest, in hindsight, it wasn't very good, but, you know, it had me, my family, uh, colleagues, you know, on the floor with how amazing the technology was. Um, and at that time, Oculus was in very early days. You know, they, they only had developer kits that were available. Yeah, I think in terms of like the decade side, like you mentioned, Bob and I were like babies basically uh, <laughs> 20 years ago. But I've had a chance to work on the simulation side with a few folks that have been around in the industry for a while and they've been looking at VR for forever. They've been doing it for 30 plus years and really just looking at it from a simulation and military perspective of here's this concept. You have two lenses and you put your eyes like this and we want to be able to render content. Um, what does that look like? And for a long time, the big challenges were, were the hardware power and the rendering power uh, to be able to actually create a good user experience that didn't make you nauseous, didn't make you throw up, didn't um, look terrible, and it was actually useful. And it wasn't until uh, the last like 10 years, apparently, that you actually started getting a better user experience. Okay, we can actually do this a little bit more consumer friendly. We can, we can have a, a more affordable experience for somebody. And then this guy, Palmer Lucky, in his trailer in California came up with just a really low cost way to do that and built the Oculus, right? And built the first dev kit for the Oculus. And he started the ball rolling, I think, like eight years ago now to where 40 years ago, we had very expensive, very robust VR to, I think, Facebook just said last month that five years, like on their fifth year anniversary of the Oculus. So it's only been five years that we really had like consumer VR and it's already like expanded to so many, to so much of an audience because of all the work that's been done over the past like 40 years to try to figure out how to get this technology into people's hands. So this, this industry as a, just, you know, it's infancy. It sounds like 40 years old. That doesn't sound, it sounds like a while. But not really when I think you're considering where it is, where it first started and where it is now. I, that sounds like infancy still. Yeah, and it's it's similar to the games industry, right? Where um, you have to think about like the infancy of the computer really is, it's the computer is still pretty infant. Um, yeah. And so as the computer has grown, we've had graphics processing. And as we have graphics processing, we created games and VR and everything's just sort of been infantilely growing. Um, but it's also in terms of like the trend of technology, accelerated in a way that's more like a curve like you have games that look like real life now when 15 years ago they looked like blocks and so it's, it's just like a dramatically increasing thing that for oculus to have their first headset five years ago and to be today where they are where they have sold over a million units and people can wear them on their heads and without any computer that wasn't possible five years ago at all no um, and so it's exciting of a, you know the momentum of how fast the evolution right where it's going to go next absolutely 
Yeah, that's really amazing because I think about, um, you know, cell phones, right? And we've seen the movies where people are carrying something that's like this big, it's as big as a shoebox, and you're going, really, that's a cell phone? (laughs) And then they, you know, became flip phones, and then they became, you know, what we have now, smartphones, and they're not a phone. They are everything, you know, that you can possibly imagine. So I think it's really um, amazing over, you just said it, you know, over the course of the time of like just phones and computers and now this type of technology, it's so, so new still. How has the VR industry been impacted by the coronavirus? And how about working remotely? So that's two sides to the question there. So coronavirus, has it impacted, do you think your business or just the industry? What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, I think everybody was impacted, especially at first, uh, March of April last year. Things were great. And then, you know, we started losing contracts and customers and, and things like that, pretty much just like everybody else. Um, but to your point about um, was VR and, and basically spatial computing and experiential um, impacted? I think yes, right? Um, the virtual world became much more accessible and much more of a necessity, but it wasn't immediate, right? It, you know, it took months of of companies deciding that they needed to go this route, um, which is, I would say, a million times faster than it would have actually gone if there would have been no pandemic. Um, so in in, uh, in some ways, there's a silver lining to a horrible you know, global tragedy, but it has progressed the technology uh, and the adoption of that technology. Who knows by how, um, how long, um, how much time was saved and and how much change um, was caused because of it. But I will tell you that there's companies nowadays that you wouldn't have expected, government entities that are now adopting virtual solutions that they would have never done it before. Yeah, it has definitely, I think, accelerated how people work um, because, you know, I don't know, it's like three or four years ago, it was like work remotely and it was treated like it was still new when actually there were organizations that were working remotely, honestly, 20 years ago, and they were the forefront, I think the forerunners of all of this. They were at the forefront and the forerunners. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely changed this. I would think that there's been a positive impact though on this type of um, work because it seems like just about everybody is working remotely. And it does seem to lend itself to the fact that these would be more of government contracts. It seems that it did not cause layoffs, I would think, but maybe I'm wrong about that. It definitely depends. Um, I would say the two sides that we've seen as far as like in the VR space, virtuality in terms of like entertainment and home-based experiences, like you mentioned, like work from home, remote working, a lot of that's expanded a lot. There's a lot of momentum on that side. Um, but there was also, I would say, a big gamble in terms of uh, what we call like location-based entertainment or virtuality arcades of having like location-based experiences of like uh, VR, uh, escape rooms, even things with the theme parks. Uh, a lot of those different areas where it's about going to a location and having this experience with this technology, um, those got impacted really hard. and, and a lot of that business has really dried up and they, they, some people have pivoted, I've seen, and some people are trying to figure out like how to provide a clean solution um, as we start to open back up and be able to provide 
experiences at like conferences and events and provide hybrid solutions between a virtual experience and an in-person experience. But that sort of location-based virtual reality, augmented reality, um, events side of thing, that got hit really hard last year. I know for us, we got infected by it. I was out in Japan working on a project, got swooped back here. Um, we had a bunch of uh, few event projects that we try to work on every year that all those events just got canceled out of nowhere. So it, it was definitely like a the, the whole industry kind of flipped over, but there was that good positive outlook of, okay, we've been trying to get into some of these areas of healthcare and education and uh, government and, and, and provide the technology so we can help solve some problems that we think can actually be solved. And before, before we were just kind of like, ah, like maybe one day they were knocking on our doors and saying, hey, like, <laughs> we have the problem now. Like, can you help us solve this? Because there's a major issue globally and we think your technology can help. So it was definitely, I would say, there's two sides of the coin, but there, there's a lot of positive momentum that's happening now. That's true. I totally forgot about the event side of it. And because ITSEC was can canceled, that industry, right. Sirius Play Conference was canceled. So there were a lot of things that, and they still are. I mean, it looks like everything's supposed to open up for sure by August, September. Most people will have had shots, but you never know. Well, that is a that was a really good conversation too, because you thought of you shared things that I had not thought about, Jim. Thanks. What was your favorite project that you worked on and why? I would say for me, my favorite project's probably therapy. So I have to explain what it is. So we worked on a project. Um, with some folks out in Tampa is a VR physical therapy project where they they were personally starting a startup company that they wanted to solve the problem of how can we use virtual reality in a physical therapy setting with kids so that we can keep those patients engaged and help the therapist to have an overall better experience with their, with their patients and help them go through physical therapy. Um, the founder, his name is Jonathan, he had gone through a lot of physical therapy as a kid he hated the experience. It was a poor experience overall. Even though he got better physically, it was just overall a terrible experience, especially for a kid to go to a doctor's office a couple times a week, stare at a wall, do these really boring exercises, and just be bored the entire time. Um, and so he had this personal mission to solve this problem by creating games and virtual reality experiences that not only entertained the patient, but provided data to the therapist, provided the aspects that allowed the therapist to do their job better. And I think really from a design perspective and a systems design perspective, that was a really fun project because we got to spend like close to three years really iterating and designing out this solution with, with these guys and building out this product from every different angle, from not just the game design side, but the technology and procuring technology and designing out new solutions and doing R&D. But then we got to take all of that, go to a physical therapist office and work with these kids and you know, these kids are living this experience and they, and they, like Jonathan, dread going to physical therapy and now they're having the time of their life. They're playing games, they're enjoying themselves, they're smiling, the patients, the therapists, the parents are all excited and happy and that's fulfilling, right? That's, that's more fulfilling than I think working on some other projects that we've done that don't have that same amount of impact. For, for me, I, I really enjoy creating that impact with the technology that we work with and, and so being able to do an experience like that that was, I'd say, probably my favorite project. Caesar sent me a note that he has an image. He he wants to know if he can share. I'm going, yeah, go ahead and do it. I don't know. You're going to tell us if if this this is <laughs> for sure or not. So he's starting to share. Yeah, that's it. 
That is very yeah, so, interesting. Yeah, we got to make some pretty cool experiences, put people in different locations, like I mentioned, in VR, take them to you know places that they probably might not go before. This, this kid on the bottom right here, he's, he's been in a wheelchair um, almost his whole life. You know, so him going to the beach and going to the jungle and these different areas is not maybe part of his normal day-to-day -day life. Um, so we got to bring that experience to to where he's at normally, right? He's going to the doctor, going to therapy, and now he gets to go to the beach and play games and enjoy himself in a in a new way while still getting the treatment that he he needs. Could it be used? This is for physical therapy. Mm -hmm. Could it be used for people that have um, post-traumatic syndrome, like mental? Yes, um, absolutely. There, there's actually UCF, uh, shout out UCF and Dr. Bidel. Dr. Bidel over at UCF is working really hard on solving that problem. She's using virtual reality to, to help PTSD. She's working with the uh, Veteran Affairs over here in uh, Lake Nona and really is just looking to push how to do similar what we were doing on the physical therapy side with mental health therapy on the PTSD side. And there's actually a, a few projects that have come like to your point about um, things that are spurring up from, from COVID last year, we've been approached by a few different organizations on how can we help use virtual reality to help with empathy, to help with mental health, to help with therapy, to help therapists work with clients remotely, to create an experience for kids so that they can open up more. Um, all these different aspects are, are things that we've kind of been exploring um, and are, are completely doable with, with virtual reality. And it's exciting to see people wanting to solve those problems. Yeah, that is. I know that it's got to be really expensive because you gave me an indication um, when you said part of the year spent planning. It takes a lot of time to plan these things. You have specialists that come to the table that help. Building this kind of a budget for a game, it's not going to be like a half a million dollars. In my head, I'm thinking it's like three, four, five million dollars. It ranges. I would say it really depends on your business model. Um, I know some folks that we're, work, we're talking with, they're going after the big grants, right? They're talking with NSF and really trying to, from a grant perspective, develop out this full solution. Um, I know with John and Tad, when we worked on Verapy, they took it the very lean grassroots startup approach. They had a little bit of bucks. We helped them build a little thing. They took that, made a sale, came back, we made an update, went back, and we did that for three years, right? Um, so there's definitely a variety of approaches. And I, I think in this industry, it's going to take all the different approaches to really push the ball forward. You're going to need the crazy startup guy that's just going to do the thing in his garage. And you're going to need the research-backed NSF grant high profile enterprise solutions and, and all of those are gonna to come together to, to create these great experiences. Mm, yeah, I can see that. Um, one, of the, one of my people that's on my team, her name is Michelle Imperial, little shout out mm -hmm. Michelle. And she is a transitioning um, Air Force, uh, what would her director of operations, I believe that's what her title is over there. And she's gonna be moving into a role as a vet she was telling me yesterday that there are 22 um, active and veterans that die a day from suicide. And wow. it's overwhelming. And I sat there and I went, how could, we, how could we help these people? Because, you know, they've served the country, you know, they've been serving their country. And it seems like post-traumatic syndrome is, is just very real, but it's maybe not even just that. There's just the, the lifestyle of having to live a very regimented life and be prepared to make that sacrifice, similar to like what police officers and 
firefighters do. So I think that there is a place for absolutely to bring better mental health to the table for many. And I suppose even in our COVID world, we are experiencing that also because of the isolation that's been there. So it's not just exclusive to one particular or a few industries. It really impacted a lot of people. Absolutely. Yeah. Caesar, you want to take the next question? I was going to say, we never got to Bobby's. What was Bobby's favorite? Project? Oh, yeah. Thanks for yeah. reeling it back in there. <laughs> He's um, not letting you off so the hook here, Bobby. It's it's my job to enjoy all of the projects that we work on. So that, oh, that's yeah, so PC. <laughs> <laughs> you got to have a favorite. Come on. <laughs> I like the ones that we can't talk about. Those are usually yeah, the best ones. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, we'll let that one ride because NDAs are very valuable for sure. Very true. I'm going back to you, Caesar. Okay. So what would you say to a potential client that is wondering if virtual reality is worth the investment? Yeah. Um, there, there's a lot that I would say. Um, the short answer is um, one, talk to a professional, right? VR is not always the answer. I think we spend a lot more time um, with, with clients and, and, and folks that reach out to us explaining why um, their problem is not exactly gonna be solved by creating the next Pokemon Go. In short, yeah, there's, there's potential for you know, lots of solutions to come out of uh, creating um, virtual experiences or virtual applications. So when, when we talk to clients, it's more of understanding their specific problem and explaining that there is a solution. Usually we take a human-centered or system-centered approach, but we don't always put the technology first. And that is kind of the main, you know, kind of what we pride ourselves on. I think you said, um, Kyle gave a very specific example that it took three years where you created, you scaled down the budget so you could give some type of a, a small scope and a, I guess minimum viable product there uh, as to what it would look like and then they get more money and then they get more money and you know you can eventually get to that place but I think that's the key there is uh, making sure that the customer feels like they're heard and that you're building a real relationship with your people. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, let's see, what would you say is the industry that uses virtual reality the most? I'm gonna go with the military. That's a good question. I think entertainment is is the, the easy answer uh, in terms of just like the game side and what um, Oculus and PlayStation are pushing for in terms of virtual reality and, and where on a consumer side, uh, virtual reality is mostly uh, consumed. But on an enterprise industry level, I think a lot of it's gonna be found in workforce training. Uh, there's been a big adoption to workforce training for virtual reality and all the different ways that it can help to optimize training at scale, um, especially when it comes to having to interact with like physical objects. If let's say, for example, uh, you're training a firefighter about how to handle burning down a building, before they used to burn a building so that you could have that experience and that that costs money and, and time to to be able to do. So if you can virtualize any part of that process, you're saving not only millions of dollars on the cost of training, but you're able to scale that quickly across multiple 
avenues and you're able to update that content very easily so that you can do continuous learning, which is an important aspect that most workforce training programs previously um, don't cover. It's usually like an annual thing that gets covered once a year, you go to a seminar for a couple of days and then that's your training. Now, if like all these virtual uh, experiences, not just VR, um, but using digital content, you're able to continue to, the learning experience throughout the entire working process. Mm -hmm. So, okay, this one's going to be a very short answer because we're going to take a break and then jump into the second half of our show. Cool. But the best part of being in business for yourself and the hardest part, because I tell people being in a startup is, I think, honest to God, the hardest thing I've ever gone through in my whole life. Like I know that when my mom died and that's not that long ago, that was hard, but it's like, bam, you're back into work the next day because you're the startup and nothing works if you're not there. Right. So not a luxury I think you have. I think that was the hardest part is not being able to um, have a mental health day or <laughs> whatever it is that you're needing for yourself, you know, just in life. Yeah. Um, the best part is you're doing what you absolutely love. That's what I think. But what do you guys think? Um, yeah, I'd say for myself, best part is probably, I think, freedom of expression, um, really being able to look at not just the work that we do and the work that I love to do, um, but to be able to look at the world and really personally just say, like, this is how I want to impact the world. This is how I want to solve this problem. This is how I want to approach this. This is how I want to uh, view how my ex expertise can be applied to X, Y, or Z, and not having any barriers to doing that. I know when I've worked in, in different industries, I've worked in different um, jobs where, you know, you have your opinion, you have your expertise, but you can't really shift past the gears of the overall organization. So at least for me, being in control of the overall organization, uh, I can move, move and shift where I think makes the most sense and be able to express that um, in a way that not only benefits myself, but also benefits my team and, and their expression of what they're looking to to accomplish as well. I would say the, the it's not the worst part, it's it's just the biggest challenge kind of to what you, you mentioned. I think personally, I like working every day. It's just kind of how I, I grew up with my parents work all the time and, and it's a balance of just enjoying what you do and being creative and working all the time. But there is, I would say that the big challenge is in all of that freedom, holding yourself accountable to having to do what you have to actually do. And as we continue to grow, and have more people that we're responsible for and more things that we're responsible for and more clients are responsible for. In all that freedom that I do have, I have to put all that aside and say, this is what I have to do today. I have to do this because I have to take care of my people and I have to take care of our clients and we have to take care of these projects. And so this is what has to get done right now, even though I wanna go do nine other things. Um, and that self-accountability is probably like the hardest thing that, that I've learned over the last like, whatever, five, seven years. I wish I, could, I wish I could say I had a better answer or a different answer, but unfortunately, I don't. I think uh, I can really only echo, and I've never put it into these words before, but I think self-expression is probably the best thing. Um, and it's probably the main reason why I you know, even considered in, in the last 10 years of my life starting up several companies and watching every single one of them fail, uh, um, and then working um, to grow this one, and then you know, leaving your day job. And, and building your company and, and doing all that, it's really, it's a high price to pay, um, but it's its really to, to be able to express yourself and impact the world in a way that you find meaningful, not necessarily, um, you know, the way somebody else finds meaningful. 
and and the struggle is real. That's the, that's what I will say. That is so true. So we're going to take a few seconds uh, time to recognize our sponsor, Cat Five Studios. The Intern Whisperer is brought to you by Cat5 Studios, who help you create games and videos for your training and marketing needs that are out of this world. Visit Cat5 Studios for more information to learn how Cat5 Studios can help your business. Thank you, Cat5 Studios. So we're back to our show. It's all about the future of work, jobs, and industries. And so we're going to go relatively quickly in this next section because you guys really did touch on quite a bit of this uh, in our previous side of what we were just talking about. What areas do you think VR will be used in the future aside from games, five to 10 years? And if you can make a guess, I don't know if you can, what do you think it's gonna look like? Because there's a lot of speculation that it's not gonna be something that we put on us. It's not like some type of apparel, it becomes something that's embedded into us. So I don't know what your thoughts are about that. But training, for sure, you guys have definitely talked about how it's used in training. Um, so I think that that's just gonna to continue to explode, but what are your thoughts? So touch on something that's really relevant and really hot right now, um, NFTs has kind of come to the forefront, I think, again, um, as, as uh, and for those that don't know what NFTs are, just think about it as your, uh, your pieces of your virtual avatar or something that, that exists digitally that only you have. And for that example about your virtual avatar, as things become more virtual, as we interact more, you know, digitally and virtually, being able to own a piece of something that is unique, just like in the real world, is going to become more important. Um, so seeing the uh, uh, growth of consumer goods in the virtual space, I think is something that is now being talked about a lot, you know, how there's tons of problems with how that's going to happen, you know, how, how that's going to be maintained infrastructurally, the energy that it takes to actually handle a transaction to um, basically own an NFT, sell an NFT, bid on NFTs. Um, there's, there's a lot of uh, uh, talk about that now. Um, so that, I mean, that's just one way that the virtual world and VR is going to be impacted. VR, we all, we all want the coolest gear when we play Call of Duty for the last five years of our life. You know, that's why you play. You want, you, you want to earn the coolest things and be the highest level. Um, now, when you say you're the only person that has that achievement and here's your proof to show it, um, that just has that much more meaning. So big companies... Um, we'll, I'm sure we'll start seeing them latch on to that as soon as they figure out how they're going to do it. Agreed. How about in convenience? Virtual reality can make work very convenient and save a lot of companies time and money, but um, there's a cost for that, of course. So convenience always equates to dollars. Um, but do you think that it's going to be changing five to 10 years from now? And if so, how? I think, yeah, I think the cost always the, comes down on stuff, right? So right, I right. as the adoption goes up, overall cost is going to come down on the hardware. Um, I think like you, like I mentioned earlier with Oculus, we had the first consumer Oculus five years ago, and now we have the Oculus Quest 2, the second iteration of the standalone headset. At, I think it dropped at like $300. Um, it's just going to continue to go down. There's going to be different people, different providers. You're going to have Apple and Google come out with their versions. You're going to have new players come into the space. Um, and I think overall, it's going to end up similar to like the PC, right? Where you have your, your Chromebook, which is your base experience, and you have your big PC monster gaming computer, and everybody's going to have their own needs, but the overall ecosystem is going to evolve as more users adopt. Um, 
I think in the next five to 10 years to your earlier point about, you know, getting towards something that's like embedded into us, I think we're going to start where we are today with VR in five to 10 years is where we'll be with like embedded um, technologies where it's just starting, where people are just starting to adopt, where the crazy people like myself will plug something in, but your your uh, normal consumer is probably not going to do that yet. I think wearables are going to be a big standard that will continue to figure out what's what is the the standard wearable um for everybody in the same sense that like i wear my fitbit every day what's going to be the standard computer that i wear every day um there's a lot of folks looking at it from that perspective like nreal and apple um of what is that that daily wearable spatial computing vr headset that people are comfortable with and i think as we start to get more of an idea of that um, and users get more adopted to it over time, that's where we'll start to see uh, that level out and, and become, become more ubiquitous. Well, that's a fancy word there. Um, so how about interactive education? <laughs> <laughs> ubiquitous. <laughs> and that just leads yeah. right to education there. <laughs> so how could we make VR more interactive in education? What would we have to do? Five to 10 years from now, guys. Yeah, five to 10 years. Um, I think the, the first barrier is the, the hardware adoption. Uh, this is something that we've run into with a couple of projects where we've talked to schools and we've talked to uh, different organizations that are excited about this type of content and getting it into the classroom. Um, and the content is there and the experience is there, but the hardware uh, is just a big barrier at this point. And not having enough content to justify the hardware cost and to roll that out into a school similar to, to bring in computers to a classroom. It, it's gonna be a, a kind of a slow organizational thing that has to be overcome. Um, but I think once we've gotten to that place where let's say there are schools that have VR headsets and are, are more used to that kind of uh, hardware in the classroom, it's gonna be creating an, exp uh, I would say a shared experience where you're not just putting on a headset and, and experiencing something by yourself and every kid is experiencing something by themselves, that becomes really hard to manage. Uh, it's something that we saw with therapy, even where if you put a kid into a headset, you can no longer see what they're doing. So you can't really help that kid. And when they're nine, 10, 12 years old, they don't know what the heck to tell you. Um, and so it really has to be a shared experience that the teacher and all the students are getting into one experience together. And it's just like being in the classroom, but you're giving the teacher new tools that they wouldn't have in a classroom to be able to create a more engaging learning experience for all of their students and be able to have that um, more immersed connectivity with their with their students. Uh, so I think that's really gonna be the next step is, is who and how we provide uh, shared experiences so that teachers have those tools um, to be able to collaborate and create effective projects and be able to, to introduce new concepts to, to a, a student. And that's when you start to get to things like virtual field trips where you'll be able to go to new locations, you're able to do more creative art projects in spatial computing, which I think is gonna be important for students to learn this technology early on and be exposed to it. Um, you're gonna have a lot of fun experiences once you're able to create that shared mutual experience from student to teacher. Mm -hmm. I can just see a student going back to meet uh, Pablo Picasso or Michelangelo. Like, wouldn't that be awesome? Absolutely. Yeah, that would yeah, be you know, if you remember like sitting in your classroom because it was like movie day and you're just sitting there watching a the movie for three hours, um, 
imagine if you had an experience where you can actually engage instead and end up even for a teacher if they can throw all their kids into a virtual experience and they know which students are being engaged which students are not engaging which who's interacting that there's there's the content side to that but there's also the data tracking right where you're able to to know how the students engaging and what they're engaged with and be able to use those metrics to say oh wow like i didn't know timmy like really loved art like we presented him with all this stuff but he just really focused on the art and that you know we have that data that we can sit back and, and assess and, and work together with the teachers to to create more curated experiences for the students I feel like I've gotten to know you guys way better than when I sat in the office, that's for sure. So I'm going to turn this one over to Bobby. So the medical side of it. Well, I think we, we kind of covered it because you talked about the Vera uh, therapy. So we'll probably skip that one and go to virtual reality and safety. So how would it be five to 10 years instead of firefighters? Obviously, I don't think you can get away from training on the ground, honestly. I just, I think that's, your, the adrenaline is there and that's, I think very hard to replicate in a virtual reality situation because even though I could be in it, I still know it's not real. Unless I'm feeling it, unless I'm feeling that my emotions are going up off the charts, I, I think that's the side that's hard to replicate. Yeah, so there's um, some studies that I'll probably uh, butcher and in stating some of the facts, but basically um, there's good evidence that uh, VR training in terms of safety and um, you know, like police work, military, um, firefighter training, EMT, um, first responder training, that, that those type of simulations do have a benefit because um, rather than simulating the stress, it's much easier to simulate the process um, and building up good habits in the virtual world actually does reflect in you know in reality when you're put in that situation for real um but that that being said if you want to think about the far future maybe you know 10 years 20 years from now um there is a uh, a, a, a amalgamation of technologies that will easily enable um first responders to um, take over a drone some sort of robot you know the boston dynamics dog and charge through a burning building and rescue a baby um, you know, using 5G uh, technology, you know, using VR headsets, using haptic suits, um, you know, uh, uh, LIDAR sensors, um, you name it. This technology altogether, it exists today in its infancy, um, but five, 10, 20 years from now, you know, all of this is, is in the, within the realm of possibility. Mm. Well, we're going to be jumping over here to the backside. You guys are going to be working with an intern soon. So what could that intern expect to, what would that workday be like for them? Yeah, so we are still in a hybrid uh, virtual in-person work environment, um, as many companies are. Uh, but we start our day with kind of a, a daily team stand-up. Um, we all talk about kind of what our goals are for the day in terms of uh, work tasks and what we're we hope to get done and, and kind of work through um, any outstanding blockers or challenges that we've had from previous days. And we really just do our best to stay connected throughout the day. Um, there's always, since we're such a small team, there's always talks of existing projects, new projects, everybody's working on different things, but then also working on the same things. There's really no lack of uh, creativity, um, but 
there's also challenges as well. Working in a startup and also being an intern, because I've been an intern at a few different companies, is finding your place. Um, I think my best advice um, to any intern working with us or working at a you know mega corporation is one, be clear about what you want to learn, and two, um, figure out where you can help. Good advice there. Okay, best mentoring advice that you want to pass on to somebody else. Kyle, you want to go first? Um, oh, that's a good question. Um, let's see. I think, yeah, I had a, a few good mentors. Um, both, both my parents are fantastic uh, in terms of just kind of pushing me along. Um, but when I got to college, uh, I had the good opportunity of making really good friends with two of my professors, um, Peter Smith, Dr. Peter Smith, and uh, Gideon Shabib. And I think with both of them, uh, when I was first starting 302, I was in school at UCF. And they both really challenged me to think, and I really got this idea from them of what I call creative stability, where you want to push and be as creative as possible. And you want to push the self-expression and, and find new avenues to be hyper-creative and create amazing things. But something that our, our industry overall struggles with uh, is stability, is having a uh, good work-life balance of being able to create amazing things while still having a proper life and still having um, good life ex work experience for not just yourself, but for your employees or for your team members. Um, so being able to find that balance. Um, so the, the, I would say best advice that I had gotten is to pursue both at the same time, to, to be hyper aware at all times of, as I try to go down this path of being a creative individual and creating new content and creating new pathways for people um, to make sure to balance that out with a stable and a stable personal life, a stable uh, work environment for, for my team, a stable uh, stream of income for everybody. And in that stability and that foundation, you'll be able to be more creative and the two things will kind of become in sync. Um, but it's something that I try to come back to and I, I even have to pull myself back and, and communicate with my mentors and say like, hey, like how do I get back to that place of creative stability for myself and how do I share that with others? Um, so I, I think that's the, that's the best advice that I could probably want to share. That's really good stuff there. How about you, Bobby? If you're an intern, be early. <laughs> <laughs> Short and sweet. <laughs> that means deliver before the deadline. That means show up early, you know, whether it's Zoom or in person. Right, it's everything. It's always be early. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. Well, how can our listeners contact you guys? Go ahead and share your website, emails, whatever you want to share. Yeah, we're really uh, active and responsive on social media. Um, so we're at 302 Interactive um, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, and then you can find us at 302interactive.com. Um, yeah, send us a message um, if you want to learn more about the industry, what we do, how you can help. Um, if you're a client out there um, and you have questions about, you know, going virtual or, or solving problems using um, immersive experiences or just a question about technology, what the heck is an NFT? Contact us. We're happy to help. Got it. And social channels, did you guys share those? Yes, yeah, at, at 302 Interactive on, on everything. On everything. Got it. Well, I want to thank you guys for being here. This was uh, really good. I had a great time. 
And I'm going to hope that um, you guys enjoyed it. But you said I could invite you a second time. So Absolutely. we'll go ahead and do that. And um, again, just to make sure our our listeners know that they can find us at internpursuit.tech. Be sure to visit our website. And we want to give thanks to Caesar, our associate producer intern, and also our video team. And we want to tell all of our listeners, have a great evening. Thank you so much.